This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're bringing you the second part of our conversation with Andrew McFadgen. You might remember Fadge from our last episode, where we sat down to talk about his personal journey as a young agronomist, the importance of mentoring, and the role he can play as an industry leader. In this episode, Fadge tells us about the key lessons he learned as an agronomist that now drive his on-farm decision-making, and how harnessing the combined power of grower-driven research is key to tackling agriculture's emerging challenges, including herbicide resistance and climate change. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor, Callan Thompson, brings you this extended chat with Fadge from the veranda of Wilga Park. So Fadge, many people probably know you due to your work on industry boards, so like GRDC and Grain Arana Alliance. Being on these boards takes a lot of time and energy. Why do you get involved? There's a couple of reasons. One, I enjoy it. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. There is a lot of time. The networks you make are unbelievable. And remember James Clark saying to me once, he said, you can never really make a difference if you're outside the tent. So if you want to try and work to create change or work towards a common goal towards something, it's better to be involved. I think back to that cooler experience, and this was when I was with CRT. A gentleman by the name of Chris McMaster was running it, and again, another great mentor to me as an agronomist and the life lessons I learned. He was on a, one of the RACs, and he couldn't get there for some reason. He flipped me into it. Again, I've, I've come in completely green with some, you know, <laughs> gun growers. Yeah. <laughs> and I just learned from that, and I actually really enjoyed that experience and, and how I saw how these people shared their ideas and were open to discussion and change. And it just evolved from probably that moment. It was one thing I really actually enjoyed about bringing ideas to the table, pulling them apart, seeing if we can get to a better place and then actually trialling it in the field and delivering back to growers. And being part of that process, really, I suppose that was in the early 2000s to just finishing up on the Northern Panel in, in 2020. And I'm still obviously heavily involved with Grain Arana Alliance and yep. looking to try and get a bit more involved with the people from Central West Farming Systems in the next 12 to 18 months. But that ability to see something from an idea through to an outcome that delivers back to growers is pretty powerful. And also to the networks you make, the more you get involved with that, the more you get back because you're actually talking to researchers and by default, they're talking to you. It's an interesting place to operate and yep. then leveraging that back into your own businesses. It's it's a pretty powerful tool, I suppose. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. It is, it, it is a big commitment like GRDC was a 40-day commitment. You know, goers probably when you're time away, you're at least five or six days away a year. Yep. They're, they're big commitments, but I, I wouldn't change that because I've really got a lot out of it. And it's probably – just, again, you're learning – different management styles, different people styles, and also the, a lot of professional development. And a, a lot of these organisations now are putting, you know, their committees and boards through professional development, which, again, 
potentially gives you a, an opportunity to be better at what you do. Yeah. And also the late night scotches with Bruce Watson was uh, always a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I think he owes me a, uh, a meal. <laughs> <laughs> Go has been a massive success. It's changed the way we think about resistance in, especially in that Northern area that you and I had been working in. It's changed the way we think about canola nutrition. Yeah. And that's just to name a few of the things that the outcomes that have come out of Goa. Why do you think Goa worked so well? Or why is it working so well? It's a really simple recipe. The reason it works is because we raise local ideas and we can get the rubber hitting the road with the white peg trials. And then, then the results delivered back to those growers really quickly, really fluid and in an autonomous way that's not clunky. Yeah. You've got to have a carrot to get anyone in, in the room. A grower once said to me, I leave my farm for two reasons, one to go on holidays and two to bring something back. So yeah, if right. you've got growers leaving and giving up time in their business, they want to have that carrot and learning from their outcomes of what their previous ideas are. And also to, you know, being able to raise ideas comfortably. Again, we've got great people. Like the people that work in that organisation led up by Maury Street, Ben O'Brien, Scott, Gary, Julie, the crew there, it's pretty special. It's a very agile team. I think we're not clunky. Like our CEO plants trials. Yeah. I'd argue other CEOs don't do that. Yeah. It's a really, really good investment of grower levy money for in return on investment. And I'd argue, and I did argue, and I still am arguing with the GRDC that the GOA and the NGA model are the best return on investment for grower levy monies anywhere in Australia. Yeah. And I'm happy to have a debate with anyone who thinks it's better because we're always trying to get better. <laughs> There's a better model, but we're not clunky. We're not tying up growers too much time and we're not complicating the uncomplicated, if you know what I mean. So we're actually dealing with real problems in real time and delivering real results. And the great thing about what we've done with that model is it works because now some of our trials and outcomes have been validated elsewhere or picked up in bigger programs to be pushed further out into industry. Yeah. So again, if, if it wasn't working, we wouldn't get buy-in. And I think grower buy-in for it is, is important. We have a bit of fun while we're doing it as well. I think yeah. that's, that's pretty important. There's been some tremendous work done by Maury and his team and, and, and also the growers because we need the growers to be on board and trial this stuff and then uptake it. But it has. It's changed the landscape in some of the things we do in the Central West and Northern River Arena. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the earlier podcasts I did was with Pete Rothwell, yeah. who's um, a massive fan of Goa. And I was actually out judging a canola competition of his and one of the paddocks had a significant amount of nitrogen. I reckon we were sort of averaging that two, two and a half tonne in good years of canola. One paddock in particular, we've sort of averaged at five, but over the farm, they're sort of looking at a four ton average. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened without Goa. And, and Pete, I, I'm sure I'll speak for him, but I, I'm sure he'd agree with that. And that's, and, and I think that's the key to it, isn't it? Like, it's all good to do the science, but if you haven't got grow a buy-in for doing it, it's very hard to get uptake. And the great thing about the Goa and, and Northern Grower Alliance type models is you've actually got grower and consultant involvement from day one, but also watching it progress locally yeah. through outcomes. And there's, look, there's been a lot of work that we've done that we think it's going to go one way and it goes the complete other way. And we actually find another research question 
out of that. And we've also challenged the research, like the whole sulfur nutrition story. Yeah. yeah. You know, if it, that was done and dusted, right? But when we actually drilled down where the, the actual work that was done, it was pretty light on. And what we've saved the industry in terms of proper nutrition up front and then really targeting in, that's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and back to the herbicide resistance awareness, it's, yeah, it's, it's having good people running these local organisations so important. Fadge, if you're a, a young agro or a, a keen farmer wanting to get involved in industry groups, how would you go about it? That's a really good question. And it's probably even a question I'm asking myself now, trying to further my career on boards. One, you need to know what's out there. So that's, that's always a challenge. And that's having a conversation, probably, probably working out. A lot of times you, you'll join local committees and boards, and that's always a good, good grounding, whether it's your local football club or cricket club or whatever. That always gives you a bit of an idea of the process. New South Wales Farmers was always probably the great stickler for good governance and process. I'd highly recommend, you know, even if you uh, become a member or and, and join your local New South Wales Farmers Committee and get to conference, that, that's always a really good way of looking at it. Find out what your passion is because you yeah. don't want to be a number you, and, and find out what your skill set is or, or find out exactly what makes you think and tick and click and where you want to channel your energy and then push it that way. Network with people, talk to people that are on these committees because they are pretty well known. Yeah. What do they do? What, what's involved? What, whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting on a preschool committee or a, or a GRDC Northern panel, you've got to be driven by outcomes for the greater, greater good. Yeah. You don't want to be doing it for outcomes for the greater good of your own self because you'll fall over pretty quickly. Yeah. Because we are all working in teams yeah. and it's not about the individuals. And luckily the committees and boards I've been involved with, I would say 99% of the people on them are on it for the right reasons. Yeah. And the ones that aren't, you soon find out why pretty quick. Yeah. But yeah, I think governance in smaller communities, especially these rural communities, there's big gaps in it. And I think there's opportunities for good governance and having better conversations and running businesses better, but that's a skill set. There's short courses you can do. Yep. I think LLS has run a few in the, in the past yeah. around the region. Highly recommend those. And then they give you a bit of a taste for it. I know ag skills had, had some good corporate governance courses. So where you want to be and how you want to get there and then try and unpack it. And then obviously if you really want to take it up to the next level, you've got the you know, Australian Institute of Company Directors yeah. to really take it to that next level. And who says a kid from Hillston or Lake Angelico can't sit on a BHP board Yeah, and, and, and dream big. If you yeah. want to do it, go for it. That's great. I advice. don't want to sit on the BHP board either. Just foot, oh, right. In case was, it's ever recorded. I was wondering if that was you just <laughs> expressing some career plans to BHP. Quite happy out here at the moment. <laughs> 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 Mate, today um, I'm actually on farm sowing tropical pasture trials. I know you've had a lot of experience with tropicals mm. up in that northern area around Kulo. How and where do you think they fit in this more southern farming system? It's really interesting when you drill down. I, I think it fits because if you look at the rainfall patterns, if we can get them up and away and we know how resilient they are, 
I always thought of Lake Jellico as a southern dominant rainfall pattern. It's not, it's uniform. Again, it's a mindset thing. We grow loose and out here because when it rains in the summertime, we have feed. <laughs> so if we can get them up and established, again, if we're getting rain in the summertime and we can fill, fill gaps and increase ground cover and have something to graze, and these things, as you know, are an absolute powerhouse in terms of productivity when they go and grow, hence the trial, I, I believe there's an opportunity. I think our challenge is going to be, we're planning in December here today with this trial. I have some other proof of concept trials in with growers with just specific varieties. We, yeah. we actually sowed them a lot earlier. Yeah. Our heater here is, it, well, it's a lot hotter than obviously cooler and Coonabarab and Hurley Warway. Not that much hotter, but it, it is hotter. Yeah. And our soils probably can't hold as much moisture. That's probably going to be the challenge for them. But I think if we can get them up and away and established, well, then, again, it could be another game changer. If we can have decent quality pastures growing over summer, maybe in conjunction with, with loosened pastures. I don't, I don't know if the whole loosened summer grass thing will work here. I just think loosened will probably drain too much. We might have to have some companion legumes over the winter in with them, some of the clovers or vice rules. But I'm, I'm confident it'll work. But it's just how we fine tune the system to make it work. And, you know, from my perspective as a grower out here, having, again, a trial in, and we, I know there's trials out near Ningen, I think you were saying, and yeah. back towards Bogan Gate. Yeah. That's going to be a really good touch point to see. It's a starting point. And if we shoot the lights out with this trial, that's all well and being. But I think it could, it could answer a few questions and pose a few gaps that I think we can address. And the other thing is too, it comes down to ground cover and sustainability, right? If we can get longer term pastures in that create ground cover, stopping erosion, allowing us to take opportunities on country that we generally deem as not productive over the summer months. Well, that's again, that's potentially a game changer. One of the issues I can see arising is on this farm, if it, if it really does work, we won't run as much water off because I know uh, my time at Cooler, we, we, the northern side of Currajong Park, we planted the summer grasses and we never had water issues up there until we got the summer grasses up and away. Didn't get the runoff. Yeah, there's always a pro and a con. But I, look, I'm, I'm confident it'll work. Planning it in December, will it work? Don't know. But Lenina forecast, and if we get wet, we should have some pretty productive pastures here by Easter. Yeah, so I think there's Suze Boschmer and her team have got some trials at Trangy. The information coming out of those looks like this timing for sowing is probably not ideal and it should have been a lot earlier. I guess one of the things when we're looking at sowing troubles, we always want to get that first rainfall event so we can control our grasses. Yeah. And yeah. Unfortunately this year it didn't happen. And I reckon if I was a advisor advising myself to sow the trials, I would have said, yeah, it's probably too late. But with trials, as you know, we sometimes... I'm just happy to have just you down here putting the trials in. in. <laughs> and look, again, if the season runs to what our climate signals are saying, we haven't really had the big summer rains yet. Yeah. So it might actually allow it to get up and away quickly, do what it needs to do and give us that opportunity to have a look at them. Yeah. And again, it's it's not too late. I've sown uh, tropical grasses after New Year's. Yeah. A little dusty I was actually, but the 
Paddock still looks okay today. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it, look, it all comes down. It's, I think you and I have always said with with summer grasses, is save them and go to the coast and, yeah. and give them that chance to to do what they need to do. And they're usually pretty thin in year one anyway, and really pick up in year two. So oh, I'm confident that we'll we'll get a result here. Yeah, and we'll have a really good idea by you know the the autumn of 2022. Yeah. That'd be a fair comment, I reckon. Yeah, I'd, I'd reckon so. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about risk of sowing trial grasses and in our little trial where we're not taking a lot of risk sowing in such a small area, but when you're sowing a paddock, it's it's fairly expensive. Mm. And and a failure in that first year does two things. It, it can cost you a fair bit of money, but it, it really puts people off. Mm. What sort of advice do you give your producers on, on how to set up, how to prepare for that sowing? I've always worked on the theory you've got to clean it up for at least two to three years, and I don't compromise on that rule. Make sure, one, you know what your weed spectrum is, you've cleaned it up, you've got a bit of ground cover, and any time, and I've done it myself, like any time you, you cut the corners or you, you try and trim that process up, it doesn't work. So at Cooler, which is pretty much the recipe I'm trying to use back down here, is we're just used to clean up our country for at least probably three years of, uh, and, and, and if it was grazing country, we'd so winter wheats and grazing oats, make sure we've got enough ground cover there. Try to be really diligent over the summer to control yeah. the liver seed grass, barnyard grass and our broadleaf weeds. So just knock that weed seed bank around. It's no different than trying to grow wheat on an autumn plant, just making sure that you've got your weed seed bank low yeah. to give it every chance to get up and away and also to create an environment of sowing into a, a nice stubble. So you've got a bit of ground cover. And I think ground cover out here is going to be even more important than back in further north, northeast, because we just get so many dust storms and sandblasting events if, if it's a bare fallow. I think that would be probably my recipe out here until proven otherwise. Yep. I'd love to say shotgun it in April and put every <laughs> variety in and undersow it. But ain't gonna work. No, <laughs> you might you might shoot the lights out one in ten years, but it ain't gonna work. Yeah, yeah. One other thing, just on that point, I know we talked about companion species and everything. We're not getting too fancy and understanding where where your species is drawing its moisture from, and understanding the critical flowering times and and seed set times. I was a massive fan of the shotgun mix when I first started, and then I started pulling it apart, going, "Well, this is ridiculous because you're always compromising something." Yeah. So maybe pasture specific species into certain paddocks, good water and wire, and rotating out of paddocks into different species, creating longevity yep. for the pastures and better livestock performance. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a rule I pretty well stick by now. Yeah. As you know, our, we have a bit of a focus trying to get these tropical grasses to move yeah. south. That's, yeah. that's a big focus for us and it's a big focus for DPI. Firstly, we've got to get people to understand why they're doing it and how they fit into the system. Then we've got to get sowing and establishment right and the final steps at grazing management. And mm. I don't know that we've we've fully understand that even in the northern system. I know Susan's doing some really good work on nitrogen fertility and, and really trying to get the best quality out of those pastures. But travelling around, I see a lot of pastures that are that are underfed and often undergrazed. I think there's there's a lot more production that we can get off these grasses and it's still quite a lot of work we need to do in that oh, space. Oh, look, I totally agree with you. And I, I don't think it's just the 
the summer grass or tropical grass space. I think it's grazing yep. in, in general. And I was lucky enough to go to New Zealand back in November, 2018, and just seeing what they're doing there with their pastures and pasture production and, and running that really at a high end, we've got a lot of, a lot of learning to do. The great thing is a lot of the science has already been done. It's just yep. validating a lot of it. And I think that's where the opportunity is. And then, and then changing people's mindsets if they want to push it that hard, especially these tropical grasses, because they will, they will go from absolutely nothing to a hell of a lot yeah. at a rate of knots. And it might be saying, well, okay, I've only got X amount of livestock here. I'm going to strategically graze this one properly and leave that as a standing haystack for winter yeah. and, and manipulate it that way. But if you've got feed in front of you, you've got an opportunity, haven't you? Right? Yeah, that's right. Resistance is something that has become a really big issue in our farming systems, our farm cropping systems. How are you recommending to your producers to, to manage that? Good question. And it's quite a poignant one at the moment. Again, identifying what you got, you don't know what you don't know. So those problem child weeds that you see that aren't dying, don't assume that something's gone wrong with the chemical or you've missed them, get them tested. Yeah. So actually build a baseline and we're doing that across the lake area on my client group here at the moment. A bit like what we did through the Central West with the goal work. If you don't know there's a problem, how can you deal with it? So working out what our issues are, out here at Lake, we've probably been a lot more conventional in our farming systems than further east and northeast where I came from. So we're actually probably ahead of the curve if we manage it well. Yeah. It'll come. It's come everywhere else and we're not going to be immune to it. It's how we position our businesses and an understanding of respecting the chemistry, respecting the crop rotations to mitigate that risk is going to be really, really important. We're having those conversations at the moment with my client group around here. And again, it's it's only because I've seen and made the mistakes, put yeah. my hand up, made the mistakes of ignoring it and now trying to put out a firestorm. Yeah. But it's doable. We've got lots of technologies and it's not just in the drum. And, and you know, whether it's strategically windrow burning or trough lining, Harrington seed destructors, rotation, grazing management. We've got a plethora of arsenal in our toolkit to manage it, but we've got to work out what we're managing it and how we set up the system to manage it and not let it manage us. That's pretty important. It's just awareness and conversations and a bit of a change in attitude towards it. Yeah. Rotate. So I said to one client, if you drunk rum every night, your liver's not going to be real good. So <laughs> it doesn't mean mix it up with scotch, but maybe a couple of nights <laughs> off on a soda water. <laughs> Pretty simple principle. Find some cultural things to make you happy rather than <laughs> maybe, maybe some chemical things. Maybe some chemical things, yes. <laughs> Fad, one of the questions I've asked most of the people I've interviewed is, um, what opportunities do you see in agriculture going forward? I think they're countless. <laughs> It's a really interesting space. I think the opportunity for agriculture to leverage off other industries and not work in a silo. So maybe I use the example of why can't Alan Joyce and Qantas Airlines be working with a farmer at Lake Angelico about real carbon emissions? So buying carbon credits on our farm or you looking at some of our farming practices, whether it be biochar, tree plantings, 
crop plantings, permanent plantings to offset their emissions from their airlines. We're all going to travel. We all want to travel. Yeah. We're all becoming more efficient in terms of how we use our energy resources. And I think there's a real push and understanding that the planet's in a bit of trouble, right, with climate change. How we can use industries that are perceived to be the carbon emitters and turn them into the carbon sinkers. Yeah. That's a massive opportunity for agriculture. And there's a lot of tech happening in that space at the moment. But in saying that if agriculture just wants to act in a vacuum in that space, we won't be able to afford those technologies and they won't be sustainable enough in terms of economically sustainable enough to use them. So we're going to need to leverage off other industries to for them to pay for that, to offset their emissions so everybody's kind of winning. I think the whole the whole where we go with food is going to be really interesting and where we go with population growth. You look at some of the population growth predictions and how we, we feed that planet and what we feed that planet. Is running lambs and cattle the most efficient way or effective way and profitable way of doing that in 20, 40, 50 years' time? Who's going to pay for it? How do we continue to do what we've done with our land assets when they continue to increase in price? That, that's a challenge for us, but it's, it's doable. And the other big opportunity for ag, and I know people talk about this negatively, is this whole social license to farm and tell our stories. Because now we've got social media platforms we can do it with. You know, if you look at how social media has been used against farmers, yeah, it's been used in a way to paint us in a negative light because that's someone's biased perception, but they've used that platform to do it. Why can't we use these platforms to tell our stories and talk about what we're doing? And then I think the other really big opportunity is, is to work collaboratively with people that could be potentially seen as against agriculture. So actually get them in the tent rather than fight over the campfire outside the tent. Yeah. Because, hey, they might have some really good ideas that we haven't thought about too, right? Yeah. You know, we, we don't always hold the higher ground. But I think if you're having those conversations, it's going to be a lot better space to be in. Yeah. There's always going to be a need for food production. Biodiversity on our farming systems globally, we're probably going to need to have a really good look at what we're actually doing to wilderness and diversity. And you've known me for years. I'm, I'm not sitting here in a tie-dyed shirt growing no, dreadlocks. But I think, <laughs> I think that whole how we can continue to, to flourish in agricultural food, well, food and fibre production, yep. and be sustainable at, that, at the farm gate level for our families to survive, but also social licence to continue to do what we do, but more importantly, globally, to continue to get outcomes that's going to allow us to still be agriculturalists, not us, but the next generations. That, I think there, there's some big questions there, but they're massive opportunities and pretty exciting place to be at, really. Yeah. Like agriculture won't exist in a vacuum, and it doesn't anyway, but I think there'll be a lot more cross-industry leveraging in the next, you know, two, five, ten years. That's a big call. It is. There is. There's a lot of things the, down. I could, could be completely <laughs> off the money, but I, I just get that feeling there's going to be a bit of a momentum shift that way. Yeah. And politicians are going to need to drive it. Yeah. Fadja, we've covered so much. I've still got questions here that I, I had written down that I was going to ask, but I, I think. Um, Mate, if you listen to the Howie games, they get the bloke back like potentially in 18 months' time and everything he said was completely wrong. So that's why we can pull them apart. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Mate, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. It's, it's always, like I said, I've, I've always respected you as a as an agronomist consultant, but more importantly as a friend and someone I've always looked up to in the industry. And I know we talk a lot and I, there's opportunities we're working on collaboratively together and to sit down and have a a bit of a formalised chat has been a, been a real pleasure, mate. So, oh. you know, thank you for your time. It's been great, Fadge. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.